Father, I thank you for your sovereign grace and wisdom and for the, the truth and beauty of Jesus' blood and righteousness shed on our behalf. God, without him, uh, we are and can do nothing. The whole reason we're here today in this glorious Sunday morning is to exalt Christ, to worship you, to come together and encourage each other, stir one another up to love and good deeds as we, as we depart. But we need you, we need your spirit in us, working by your almighty power and grace to move us to, to action and to obedience, which starts from a heart that loves Christ. So um, even though the sermon will be just a little bit different today, we're grateful for your word and the assurance and confidence that we have in it. And in it, we have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness so that you'd be honored and glorified through our lives. Thank you, God, so much for this church, everyone here today, and those joining us online as well. I pray that everyone will be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned at the end of the sermon last Sunday that uh, Mark's gospel has a, an interesting ending. And so we are going to get into that today. And I need to start off with a little bit of introduction regarding the veracity, the truthfulness, the accuracy, the authenticity of God's word, which we as believers have 100% confidence in, and these Bibles that we have in our hands by God's grace. And uh, that was the reason why our brother Tony read from Psalm 19 today, which describes God's word, especially in verses 7 through 9, right? It should be etched in our minds, Psalm 19, as soon as we hear that. The first part is God's natural revelation in creation, right? And then 7 and on is God's special revelation in his word. And so once again, verse 7 through 9 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And so each one of those verses uh, describe God's word, some aspect of God's word, and it also tells us what it does for, for us. And so um, wonderful verses. I remind you of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God, right? And so we believe in the inerrancy of God's word, the infallibility of God's word, the inspiration of God's word, which really the Greek word there means it's God breathed, okay? God breathed his, his word, this Bible, to us, all the scriptures, Old Testament and New. And so I just want to introduce by talking a little bit about the preservation of God's word, because if God took the time to reveal it to us and have these 40-some authors write it over just uh, many centuries, um, wouldn't he be wise enough and powerful enough to preserve his word that he wants us to have these many years later? Yes, of course he would, but um, I asked the question along with um, a Christian apologist named Joe Coffey, uh, how do we know that the Bible that we have today is, is accurate and authentic? Um, so one thing that he su suggests that we can do is to compare it to other ancient literature. 
And historians have a, they've figured out this method for um, testing such ancient literature for authenticity. And uh, there's kind of like a authenticity test. And there's three questions that we should ask uh, when we're examining the authenticity of any ancient writings. And so uh, the first, well, I'll just give you the three questions, okay? And if you want to, this is going to become like part sermon, part lecture. But um, the first question is this, how early is the earliest copy of that ancient writing? Okay, how early is the earliest copy? The second question is, how many copies do we have? And the third question is, how much do the copies vary from one another? V-A-R-Y. Another way to ask that is, how consistent are the copies with each other? Okay, and I keep saying copies, right? You know why that is? Because <laughs> there's no original manuscripts of any ancient literature. Okay, when I say ancient, I mean like, you know, a couple thousand years ago, right? None. All the originals that were written on that kind of um, parchment or vellum, as it's called, this animal skins or uh, just the different materials that they used, they've all deteriorated a long time ago. And so all the ancient documents in existence today of any old literature are copies. So that's why those questions are so important. Okay? The closer our earliest copy is to the date of the original writing, and the more early copies that we have, and the more consistent they are with each other, the better off we are. Okay? So I want to share just three examples, three examples of ancient writings, and then see how they compare with the New Testament. All right? So um, we've all heard of Aristotle, right? Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Smart men. But um, Aristotle was around uh, 384 BC to 322 BC, so this is roughly 300-something years before Christ. So his logical treatises... It's this collection um, known as the Organon. They were written around 340 B.C. Okay, 340 B.C. According to historians, that was the time of the original writing. Aristotle lived. He wrote those. But the earliest copy that we have is dated, guess when? A.D. 1140. Okay, so B.C., 340 B.C., the earliest copy that we have of Aristotle's treatises is A.D. 1100. Sorry, I said 1140, but it's 1100. So that means it's 1,440 years after the original is our earliest known copies. Okay? And guess what? There's five of them. Five such copies in existence. Okay? So that, there's Aristotle for us. How about Julius Caesar, who lived a little bit later? He lived from 100 BC to 44 BC. And um, he wrote uh, a book called The History of the Gallic Wars. This was uh, approximately 50 B.C. And the earliest copy that we have of that one is A.D. 1000. And so if you do the math, it's 1,050 years after the original. 1,050 years after the original writing. Okay, so there's nine copies of those, right? Almost double the amount of, that we have for... Aristotle's. All right, last one is Homer, okay, the Greek poet. He lived uh, around the 8th century B.C. They're not sure exactly um, his, his birth date, but 8th century B.C., so he's before these other guys. 
And he wrote the Iliad in about 800 BC. And the earliest copy we have of that is from AD 250. So do the math again. It's similar to Julius Caesar. It's roughly 1,050 years after he originally wrote it. So even though Homer wrote uh, centuries before Aristotle and even Julius Caesar, um, there's a lot more manuscripts of Homer's writing for some reason. There's 650 either partial or full manuscripts of the Iliad, okay? Um, 650 copies, that's a lot comparatively, right? Versus five, versus nine. 650 is, is many, many. So um, interesting facts here. And we might just note that the vast majority of historians, everyone's pretty much agree that these are um, accurate, authentic, historic documents. So what about the New Testament? How does the New Testament compare with, with these in this authenticity test? Well, we know that by A.D. 95, 90 to 95, right, John finished Revelation. And so this is around 60 years after Jesus lived on earth. Okay? All 27 books of the New Testament had been written by that time. Okay? And by A.D. 900, by A.D. 900, we have over... 5,000 manuscripts, okay, either partial or full. Over 5,000 manuscripts by A.D. 900. So finished 95 or so by A.D. 900, that's like roughly 800 years, which is a full century at least before any of these other you know, documents, right? We said 1,050 years between original and, and earliest known copy. So um, over 5,000 manuscripts, that's uh, pretty incredible. Right? Let me just tell you, the earliest partial manuscript, it shows up within less than 100 years. Okay? It's a little piece of John 18, just a tiny snippet. But it's all there, and it's identical to what we have in our English translations. Obviously, the, the original was in Greek, right? But um, everything matches completely. Uh, from the second century, okay, this is within two to 300 years of the original writing. They have the original Gospel of Luke, the whole thing. The original Gospel of, entire Gospel of John, and three more New Testament books, 1st and 2nd Peter and Jude, in its entirety. Uh, by the 3rd century, which is A.D. 300s, okay, which is 200-something years uh, between the original writing and, and then, we have two complete manuscripts of the entire New Testament, okay, the whole thing. And so, to quote Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was a paleontologist and president of the British Academy in the 1970s, um, or sorry, from 1917 to 1921, he wrote this, quote, the interval between the dates of original composition and the earliest manuscripts of the Bible becomes so small, it is in fact negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come to us substantially as they were written has been removed, end quote. Okay, so hopefully that's assuring uh, to you all uh, that we have the authentic word of God in our hands as we read and study and preach and go over the Bible. Um, how early were the, manu uh, were the manuscripts and how many do we have? The last question regards the, the variances, right? The third question, how much do these copies vary from one another? How consistent are they with each other? Um, because if the, the content of these ancient documents um, 
were just like all over the place and they didn't match up. It wouldn't matter how many thousands of manuscripts we had, right? It wouldn't mean much to have a lot of them if they weren't consistent with each other. But the greater the consistency, the better off, once again, we are. The more confident we can be that the original was accurately passed down through history. And so this is also where we find the New Testament to be utterly remarkable. Thousands of biblical scholars have studied, poured over all these manuscripts through the centuries. They do acknowledge that there are some variances within them, and they've found them. And this is what you would expect since we have so many handwritten manuscripts. And um, here, just a summary of what uh, the biblical scholars have discovered. Norman Geisler and William Nix, for example, as they studied these variances in all the manuscripts, they concluded, quote, the New Testament has not only survived in more manuscripts than any other book from antiquity, but it has survived in a purer form than any other great book, a form that is 99.5% pure. And I'll just give you one more Bible scholar, A.T. Robertson. He wrote, quote, The vast array of manuscripts has enabled textual scholars to accurately reconstruct the original text with more than 99.9% accuracy, end quote. And so using the, the same three-question test that historians use for any literature, whether secular or religious, Okay, no other document compares to the New Testament in authenticity. Okay, it's not even close. And, and I hope you're, you're tracking with me here, right? We can be certain that the Bible we have today is a, a faithful representation of the original writings. So once again, I want to make sure we all understand that there's scribal errors, okay, like omissions and um, additions here and there. But the good thing is, the scholars, they figured out where they were because there's so many manuscripts to work from. They compared them all. And um, in having so many of them, uh, we see that these variances are, are very, very minor. Okay? They're inconsequential. They don't affect any major doctrine of Scripture. Um, the modern translations of the Bible, they're markings or footnotes that give us, indicate to us, they tell us where the variances are. They give us alternate readings. And obviously, the ones that are most accurate, they, they put in the original text, and so, or in the main text. So um, no one's trying to hide these errors, in other words, right? It's good to know where they are so that we can see that they're not of major consequence or even minor consequence. So this brings us to the ending of Mark, as I said, this interesting ending. And uh, we have one of these variances. It's one of the most well-known variances, but some folks, um, and sometimes we don't uh, just look closely at the text, so why don't we turn to Mark chapter 16. Um, there's a, a scribal edition. Uh, someone might, some have called it an ancient appendix, and uh, this causes us to think through, to even be educated a little bit as we've been, perhaps, just these last few moments, and we get to wrestle and reason and think through and ultimately believe God's word. So if you look there in Mark chapter 16, and you look at verse 9 in your Bibles, many Bibles, if not most Bibles, have a little bracket there after the number 9. Does anybody's Bible have a bracket afterwards? Okay, so when it's bracketed there, there's usually a note that uh, comes with. And uh, mine here, which is the, the NASB 1995, um, it says in uh, the footnote that later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. 
okay? And so this is um, indicating to us that this is uh, something that was one of those scribal additions or um, alternate, alternate endings or additional endings. And so we want to just uh, take a look at that. If you look in your bulletin, and it's not uh, written that way up there, but uh, if you look in your, your bulletin, the way that I put our text for this morning, I'm not even going to ask you to stand and, uh, as I read it or if I end up reading the whole thing or not. Um, and I'll explain, but I put it in brackets there so we are conscious and aware uh, and knowledgeable of the fact that uh, there's something going on here, okay? And so part sermon, part lecture, I've titled this last kind of post-lewd message uh, in Mark's gospel, the awestruck ending of Mark's gospel, the awestruck ending to Mark's gospel. And so um, that is how we're going to conclude, okay, at the end. Um, to get there, let me just give you just the lay of the land, all right? Three questions that I hope we're going to answer. I can't cover every single detail, and it's actually just a, it gets quite involved, but try to cover the basics here. So the first question is, why did the early scribes, the people who copied down the Bible, right? Why did they add verses 19 through 20, or 9 through 20, okay, which is called uh, by some the long ending, okay? There's even a shorter ending also, which some of you have at the very end after verse 20, um, which is also in brackets. That's like the shorter ending that other scribes added a little bit later. Okay, so why did they add those, those endings there? And I'll, I'll try to be really brief with that. The second one, maybe a little bit longer. Why verses 9 through 20 most likely are not written by Mark? Okay, I want to try to explain why this long ending was most likely not written by Mark. And I would argue not part of the original canon. Okay, not inspired scripture. And then lastly, uh, before we get to the conclusion, uh, what does... What does verses 9 through 20 say? In case we're wrong, okay? in case I'm wrong, I could be wrong. Let me just acknowledge that. Uh, just, you know, there's, just, there's definitely a debate about all this. But, um, so we do want to look at what do verses 9 through 20 teach, and I'll do, do that as briefly as I can. And then um, lastly, like I said, uh, the awestruck ending of Mark's gospel. Uh, I want to just go into that a little bit, why I believe verse 8 is that awestruck ending, okay? So, first thing, why would these early scribes add verses 9 through 20, okay? Or even the, the other shorter ending. Because um, look at the very end. Let me just point you to, it's probably at the end of, uh, the very end after verse 20, where this other bracketed words are, are written. Okay, some manuscripts, later manuscripts, have added this, and it says, and they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions, and after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. I mean, even as I read that out loud to you guys, it doesn't sound like Mark at all, <laughs> all right? But um, in any case, it, it makes some sense, though, if you want to conclude it. And, and uh, you know, the reason why these, these scribes who were, you know, very diligent, very just careful, I mean, there's all sorts of stories of the, the care that they took to copy down God's word because they knew how sacred and holy it was. Like they'd copy down like one, one letter or one word or one sentence and then go take a bath and then just do another sentence and then take another bath and just, uh, they were very, very fastidious um, 
uh, many of them. And so uh, in any case, somebody added this, and it kind of makes sense following verse 8, right? They went out, the, the women, right, the disciples, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So the main reason is that, it, and I mentioned this last week, I think, it just seems very abrupt. Right? It seems like a, a sudden ending, almost even incomplete, right? Especially at first reading, it seems like this narrative with um, these, these women disciples being afraid, it just doesn't seem fitting. Um, there's, there's almost like a, an expected conclusion uh, to the angel's instructions. I'll remind you of verse 7, right? The angel who's at the empty tomb there, he tells them, go tell his disciples and Peter, All right? He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So you kind of expect them to follow up on those instructions. Uh, you kind of maybe anticipate Jesus appearing in his resurrection. Maybe Mark, you know, should have added that. The scribes might have thought that. Um, so the other thing is they, they probably wanted to make Mark's gospel end more like the other three, okay, with those other, these events, Jesus' resurrection, the, the women disciples doing what they're told, and the disciples finding out, and people meeting Jesus, okay? So, um, so that is why. That's the basic reasons why they would think to add something. Okay, the second point, second question of our message is, why verses 9 through 20 were most likely not written by Mark? And this is why I and many others, other commentators, theologians, pastors, um, believe that they were most likely not written by Mark, and they would argue also not part of original scripture, inspired scripture. So the first thing is the external evidence, and the second thing is the internal evidence. What do I mean by that? External evidence simply means outside of scripture, okay? the evidence that's found outside of the Bible, outside of the text, external evidence. So um, you should just know a couple things here. The earliest and most important manuscripts, okay, for example, I could give you a whole bunch of uh, names here, but uh, once again, it gets detailed and involved. But <laughs> let me just say, uh, two of the most important and earliest ones are the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus. And they were, this is one of those that I mentioned that are around the AD 300s, okay? Um, they do not include verses 9 through 20. They end at verse 8. And there's a host of others. I could mention the old Syriac, most copies of the Armenian and Ethiopic versions of the New Testament, ends at verse 8. All right? Um, and so that's part of the external evidence. The other part is this. Many early church fathers and scholars make note of their doubts about the long ending, even if they saw them in there from some of the manuscripts. They, they had doubts about it. Eusebius of Caesarea, he was around AD 265 to 340. He wrote this, quote, nearly all the copies of the gospel according to Mark end with verse 8. Right? Jerome, he was the translator of the Bible. He translated the uh, Bible into Latin called the Vulgate, right? This was around uh, 404 AD. He made the same statement uh, just right around that time that he was translating the Bible into Latin, Jerome. And lastly, Victor of Antioch. He lived in the 5th century, so roughly 100 years later. 
Uh, He was the first known commentator of the Gospel of Mark. He said the same thing, um, but he was one who added comments about the longer ending because he did find them in some of the manuscripts. Okay, so uh, many, even most scholars believe that verses 9 through 20 were attached sometime in the second century. Okay, pretty early, actually. Uh, And many of them, many manuscripts. And uh, so second century or later by scribes, who thought that the Gospel of Mark should end more like the other ones, okay? So let me just cap that off by quoting um, Larry Hurtado, another Bible scholar, recent. He says, over the course of time, these verses became the ending to Mark in the great mass of Greek manuscripts and were popularly regarded as a genuine part of the Gospel, okay, over the course of time. The earliest and best Greek manuscripts do not, however, contain these verses. And the testimony of the earliest fathers of the church, which is the first four centuries, indicates that these verses were known only in a few copies of Mark and were not regarded as original with the book, end quote. All right, so external evidence is something that's um, pretty strong, even though, once again, it's, it's debated. Okay? Now, internal evidence inside the Bible, inside the text, inside the scripture, um, just even these, these verses and compared with the rest of Mark, Listen, there's four things we should uh, take note of. There's such difference in vocabulary, in, in style, in the contents of these verses with the rest of the Gospel of Mark, and then other miscellaneous stuff, okay? So let me just share with you. Verses 9 through 20 contain at least 14 different words that are not found anywhere else in Mark's Gospel, okay? That's, that's a lot for such few verses. Um, a few of these words are used more than once, and so the actual count is 18, in just 12 verses. So all of a sudden, Mark uses words that he hasn't used in the whole previous 15 chapters. Okay, that's, that's pretty odd. There's also some peculiar phrases which Mark never used anywhere else in those previous 15 chapters that are found here in these 12. And um, interestingly, some of those are found in Luke and John, but they're not found in Mark's own gospel. Interesting. Okay, so there's vocabulary. The style The summary-like style of verses 9 through 20, it's unlike anything, uh, any descriptions, the way Mark writes in in his gospel. It fits poorly with the previous verses. It's not consistent with the previous 15 chapters. The action is very descriptive. This is like just a putting together of of summaries of events that that happened um, when, when Jesus was resurrected and what the disciples did. Um, there's other things in the style, infrequent use, uh, uses of the words chi, which means and. Mark uses that all the time in the previous 15 chapters as part of his style of moving from one event to another immediately, immediately. But here in these last, last 12 verses, it's hardly in there at all. Okay, so vocabulary style and content. Um, verses 9 through 20, this long ending, uh, contains themes that are unique only to these verses and not the rest of Mark's gospel. Uh, For example, his repeated chastisement of the disciples for their disbelief of the gospel proclamation, which uh, we find in a few consecutive verses um, there, and also in verses 17 to 18, which we'll get to in a uh, next point, the prominence of the charismatic signs, uh, emphasizing that, and um, Jesus emphasizing that, which he doesn't in in, uh, earlier in Mark's gospel. Okay, so contents added to vocabulary and style. Lastly, just other miscellaneous things. Okay, many have commented on 
look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Mary Magdalene is introduced in this verse as if she's a newcomer to the scene, right? Newcomer to the story. Um, Even though Mark has mentioned her three times immediately before this, okay? You remember from the the end of chapter 15, right? In verse 40, in verse 47, and even the first verse of chapter 16, she's already mentioned. And then in verse 9 here, she's mentioned as if she's new, like she has to be introduced. And so that doesn't really, um, just, I find that to be very not consistent. Um, Jesus is referred to as the Lord Jesus in verse 19. And in verse 20, the Lord, first time ever. Just Mark does not describe him that way throughout his gospel. His custom and practice was to refer to Jesus by his given name or by the way Jesus referred to himself, which is the Son of Man, right? And so, um, so those are all reasons why we, at least I and many others, um, don't think that this was written by Mark, okay? Actually, almost everyone agrees that it wasn't Mark who wrote it. But some would argue that we can still consider this to be part of Scripture, okay? even though Mark was not the author. And once again, there's, um, there's debate with that, so I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but... Their reasoning is because these verses were probably added to Mark before or by the time of the final decision of what was going to be in the New Testament canon, that it could be considered part of the canon. Okay, So that's a, a debated thing. But um, let's move on to the next, next question. What do these verses say? What are they teaching? And I'll just summarize by saying almost everything that's found in these verses can be found elsewhere in the New Testament. It seems that they're just a a summary uh, from other New Testament passages or or even borrowed from the other Gospels, borrowed from Acts, and um, assorted other New Testament epistles. Um, So we want to always compare uh, Scripture with the rest of Scripture, right? That's part of how we get our biblical and systematic theology. And so, um, in our doctrine. And so, just uh, if I was going to make an outline for verses 9 through 20, um, probably three main sections. Verses 9 through 14, uh, the resurrection appearances, okay, which, again, we would anticipate if there was more to um, the, the Gospel of Mark. Jesus' resurrection appearances, and uh, I'll just read starting in verse 10 there. It says, She went and reported to those who had been with him, While they were mourning and weeping, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Okay, that sounds familiar, right, from some of the other Gospels. Verse 12 says, After that, he appeared in different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. And they went away and reported it to others, but they did not believe them either. Who does that sound like? Right, on the road to Emmaus, right, the two guys from Luke. And then um, verse 14 says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. So verses 9 through 14 maybe make up the the first, just part of an outline, if you're going to put it together, of Jesus' resurrection appearances. Verses 15 through 18, we see the Great Commission 
and attesting signs. Okay, the Great Commission and attesting signs. Verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, right? That is Jesus' commission, which we find in actuality in Matthew 28, right? Verses 18 through 20, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Okay, and so in verse 15, in this writing here, uh, it says it very similarly. And then in verse 16, it says, he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And so uh, we want to understand that belief and baptism there is uh, two conditions, and the, the baptism condition is related to the saved condition. So it's not saying that baptism is a requirement to be saved, but simply that those who have believed and been baptized are saved. But then in contrast to that, those who disbelieve are, con are condemned. Okay, so that pretty much matches uh, everything else um, that's, that Jesus said in the rest of the New Testament. Verse 17 through 18, I do want to pause here for a moment. It says, these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. All right, maybe so far so good, right? Especially when we understand if this was part of actual scripture, we're still in a a narrative genre. We're in a narrative uh, portion of Scripture, just like Acts. And so in Acts, we do see people, the, the apostles, uh, speaking in new languages, new tongues. We see them casting out demons. We see them doing miracles, right? These are attesting signs that witness to their message. And so, um, and Jesus is not saying that every believer afterwards, for forever, are going to have this, but um, we understand the whole counsel of Scripture. So look at verse 18, though. It says, And they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And so we, we do need to pause there. And so, you know, just the, if we're being generous or, or liberal with the, the, the message here, and then they will pick up serpents and it will not hurt them, um, our mind goes to Acts, right? So why don't we just turn there just for a moment? Okay, Acts uh, 28, the last chapter of the book of Acts. Acts 28, and so here's what the, the narrative actually says, and we're thinking of Paul, right? This is something that happened to the Apostle Paul. Again, in a narrative portion of Scripture, so describing um, this pretty amazing thing that happened. Acts 28, I'll just read you the first six verses here. It says, When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. Okay, this is like A.D. 59 to 60. And it says there, The natives showed us extraordinary kindness. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper, a snake, a serpent, came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubted, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. These are pagan people who are thinking like this, right? But verse 5 says, However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. 
But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. All right? So they expected him to, to swell up by, by the bite of this poisonous snake and for him to, to die, but none of that happened, so they changed their mind and they think he's a god instead. Okay? So going back to this verse here in, at the end of the interesting ending of, of Mark, it says, uh, they will pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. So I don't know that we can, you know, just kind of one-to-one compare those two things. Um, but for sure, we would be clear that this is not the source of any doctrine, okay, teaching. We, we don't find anything like this in any other portion of Scripture whatsoever. And so we, we've probably heard of the, the cults in the Appalachian Mountains and just different places in the world where um, they're taking this verse as, as like for today. And so, and, and trying to attest and show that they're, they're faithful believers in Jesus Christ. And so they're, they believe that you can handle snakes, and that's part of their practice, part of their worship. And uh, it's utterly, you know, just, it doesn't make any sense. But that's what happens when you take verses out of their context and uh, misapply them. And so, um, verse 18 goes on to say, And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Okay, that's not found anywhere else in any of the Gospels, nowhere in Acts, nowhere in any of the epistles, right? So this, just to let you know, also causes me to think that, you know, it's kind of verification for me that, that this does not, um, it doesn't seem to be inspired scripture. But once again, we could be very generous in our interpretation of that and just, you know, maybe Jesus said it just for that time and maybe it applied to the early apostles just like the next things which says they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover because the apostles did have supernatural just uh, power and, and um, just miracles that they did and so uh, perhaps it is, it is part of that. Um, they could be even protected from, from drinking harmful things, normally harmful things. Okay, So anyway, that's um, that's that portion of it, the Great Commission and these attesting signs. And the last part is verses 19 through 20. Um, basically, it's his ascension and proclamation. So it says there in verse 19, So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 20, And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirm the word by the signs that followed. All right, I'm just saying, <laughs> as I've studied the Gospel of Mark for these last two and a half years, it's just like completely foreign, uh, just very, very different. If you're paying attention just to literature and, and just writing and words and, and phrases and stuff, um, uh, whether it's in the Greek or in the English, it just uh, doesn't, doesn't jive. So anyway, that's uh, summarizing his ascension and proclamation. And logically, once again, folks, it makes sense. Okay, the ascension, it's, it's in, um, just uh, we see that at the end of Luke and into the, the book of Acts. And um, in fact, next Sunday we're going to do a one-off sermon on the ascension, the doctrine of the ascension, why it's important, why we should believe it, how it matters to our, our lives. And so it's not necessarily something that people think about, right? After the resurrection, uh, ascension. So hopefully that's uh, something we can uh, look forward to and gain from next Sunday. But to end today, I want to um, 
finish with this awestruck ending of Mark's gospel. And once again, uh, why I believe that verse 8 is the actual awestruck ending. And it's consistent with Mark's style. Um, the beginning of Mark's gospel, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I mean, it's just, a, it's just like a, a statement. You know, it's, 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 um, it just says this is the beginning, and he jumps right into John the Baptist, jumps right into what was said and what, what was happening with John the Baptist fulfilling it, and then right into Jesus' ministry after his baptism. And so it jumps right in. Mark omits anything about the birth of, of Christ, right? Um, unlike Matthew and Luke. And so the beginning is sudden, it's abrupt, and the ending too is sudden and abrupt. And this fits Mark's rapid fire style of describing the Lord's ministry in life. But even more telling than that, I think, is the running theme throughout Mark's gospel. And it's this, and I mentioned this in the very first introductory sermon, that people are continually amazed and afraid of the Son of God. Okay? Amazed and afraid of this God-man. Whenever they see him, whenever they hear him, whenever they meet him, whenever they experience his words and his powers and his miracles and his teachings, we might almost expect Mark's gospel to end in this way in verse 8. Okay? with trembling and astonishment. And so I want to just take a little bit of time here to rehearse the awesome reactions of people to Christ. Okay? And you can either jot these down or you can just follow along in your Bibles. Okay? Uh, we're going to start in, in, in chapter 1. I'm just going to highlight just these different words that Mark uses to describe people's awestruck reactions to Jesus, the Son of Man. So chapter 1, verse 27, and this will give us a good refresher, okay, to end the gospel of Mark. After he casts out the demon in the synagogue, you'll remember, it says they were all amazed, thambeo, and debated and questioned among themselves. And they, they asked, what kind of teaching and authority is this? Okay? And so that word means to be astonished, right? To be astonished, to astonished, even, even terrify. You'll find that a lot of these words have uh, a potential nuance or they're used to describe fear as well. Chapter 2, verse 12, after Jesus heals the paralytic and forgives his sins, the people, once again, were all amazed. Okay? It's a different word there um, in the Greek. And it says that they glorified God. They said, we have never seen anything like this. Okay, so that word there, to be uh, amazed, uh, it means to displace, okay, to throw out of one's position. Okay, it's to be uh, beside oneself. Have you heard that expression before? I was beside myself. Usually it's like kind of anger, right? But sometimes it's surprise or shock. And so you're beside oneself. Um, to be out of one's mind even. This was their response uh, to, to Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 41. The disciples, they became very much afraid. They feared exceedingly. 
It's that word phobeomai, which we get the English word phobia, right? So they feared exceedingly when Jesus rebuked the sea and he calmed the storm. And you remember the question that they asked at the end there? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And who rebukes nature? And so that word, phobetmai, means to, to, to be afraid, to be struck with fear. Um, and it's used of those who, who are startled by strange sights or, or um, events, people who are struck with amazement. Right, chapter 5, verse 22, 23. When Jairus, you remember good old Jairus, right? The synagogue official whose daughter died. And when, when Jairus saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. And this is one who's, who's fallen prostrate, who's in an upright position, but they fall down, um, just face into the ground. And at the end of that, after Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, verses 42 and 43, it says, They, which is Peter, James, and John, who Jesus, remember, uh, pulls in, and some other witnesses, it says they were completely astounded after witnessing that amazing miracle. And so, once again, it's that uh, word that I mentioned before, to be beside oneself, to be out of one's mind. And... Um, there's another word, ecstasis, which also we get the English word ecstasy. Okay, so to be thrown into amazement, uh, a state of blended fear and wonderment. Okay, this is their response to, to Jesus, to experiencing him. Chapter 6, verse 2. Many who heard and saw him were astonished. Yet another word, ekpleso, which Mark uses, um, they ask, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Okay, so that word ekpleso, it means to strike with panic even, with shock. They were astonished once again. Uh, we know that many people were offended uh, by Jesus, took offense at him. I won't go into that. Uh, that's also in chapter 6. But later on at the end of chapter 6, verses 49 to 51, it says, seeing Jesus, um, as the disciples see Jesus walk on the water on that stormy sea, they see him, and guess what their reaction was? They were terrified. And they were troubled. Phobetamai. That's the same word as before. And then it says, they became utterly astonished. Utterly astonished. There's a, a, an adjective added to that. Um, adverb. When he gets into their boat and the wind stopped, Right? He gets into the boat, the wind stops, and it says that they became greatly amazed. Uh, this is utterly astonished, beyond measure, right? They couldn't believe it. This was um, marveling along with being terrified. Okay, again, folks, that word terrified, like they, they want to run, but, but they don't have anywhere to run. They're, they're in the middle of the sea in, in, in this storm. Um, and so they're, they're stuck there and just beside themselves. So um, chapter 7, okay, we got a few more here. Chapter 7, verse 37. Witnesses were utterly astonished is the English translation, but it's yet uh, another um, word that's used there. It's beyond measure after he healed that deaf, mute man, chapter 7. And so um, this is to be 
To be blown away, basically, uh, is what that word means after he heals this deaf mute. Uh, chapter 9, verse 15, it says, When the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And this is, uh, again, to alarm, to be put into a state of alarm, to thoroughly alarm, to be struck with alarm or amazement. Okay, chapter 10, verse 23 through 26. We're getting to the end here. After the rich young ruler goes away, the disciples were amazed at his words. Okay, greatly astonished. Well, first they were amazed. Um, and again, that word just, uh, it, it can be used to, to, be, to describe fear as well, but to be greatly astonished. It's, it's extraordinarily astonished, exceedingly, exceedingly struck with, with amazement. All right? So I feel like I'm repeating my words here, but that's I, so we get the point. Verse 32, this is uh, after that whole thing. Um, the 12 and others were amazed, and it says fearful at him okay again this is shock and fear shock and awe um, just uh, continually throughout mark's gospel chapter 11 verse 18 after his cleansing of the temple the chief priests and scribes were afraid for again they were afraid of him why for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching again stun uh, stunning and and fright uh, being afraid and also being shocked. Verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 17, it says, The crowd were amazed at him. Yet another Greek word, ekthaumadzo, it means greatly marveling. Uh, and they were wondering at, they were amazement at his answer to the Pharisees. So it's not just the miracles, not just the incredible things that they saw him do, whether it was casting out demons or healing sick people or paralytics or lepers or whatever. Um, it was even at his teachings that they were struck with astonishment and then even fear. And so uh, that was chapter 12, right? So chapters 13 through 15, if you'll recall, Jesus is on the road to the cross. This is like less than a week before he goes. He's at the cross. And even in chapter 15, Mark writes that Pilate was amazed at him. And um, maybe you recall that because Jesus was silent while all these false charges were being hurled at him. And he doesn't defend himself. Pilate was amazed. He was marveling. He wondered at, even in admiration of this man. And so, verse 8, it says, once again, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid, right? So this leaves us, along with the women, uh, as they're gripped with that. They were, they were just gripped by this overwhelming sense of awe. It leaves us with that same sense of astonishment and trembling, even fear. And for believers, it's not ultimate fear or fright, but a reverent fear. And so, as I wrap this up, um, I want to remind you of Mark's purpose, okay, the purpose of Mark's gospel. And it's to, to tell us, to reveal to us that Jesus was and is the Christ, okay, the Messiah. 
He is the Son of God who should be believed in and followed by everyone. That's the purpose of his writing, to reveal to us the truth that Jesus was and is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man who should be believed in, must be believed in, and followed by everyone. And so I'm excited um, just to get on to our our next uh, thing and then our next book after our next little series that I'm, I'm planning but I'm also a little bit sad uh, to conclude here. But um, let me just uh, leave you with this. There was a, an Englishman named George Attlee, and he was a missionary to Africa. When he went there, he was attacked by a bunch of the natives. And um, at the time, Attlee was armed with a, a Winchester repeating rifle, 10 chambers loaded up, all loaded up. And so they didn't have guns the natives, okay? Um, And so they were at his mercy. But it seems that this missionary man summed up the situation. He concluded that if he killed the natives, he would do more harm to the gospel mission than if he allowed them to take his life. So when his body was found in the stream, his rifle also was found, and it had its 10 chambers still fully loaded. And so um, George Adley, this missionary man, could have saved himself, but he chose to give his life for others, for the cause of Christ. And doesn't that remind us of that key verse, Mark chapter 10, verse 45? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the key verse. And so for those who have not yet believed in the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior, the call for you once again is to turn from your sin of unbelief and believe in Jesus Christ for the eternal salvation of your soul and trust that he has accomplished what you could not do, which is to get yourself to heaven when you die. That day is coming, and it's a day coming that that we don't know about. We don't know when or where or how, but it is coming. And so God would call you to repent, confess your sins, put your faith in Jesus, the one who died so that you can be forgiven and you can receive the gift of eternal life because Jesus loved you that much. And the encouragement for us who are saved, um, C.J. Mahaney says this, if you've been genuinely converted, You've been forgiven and transformed. And though for now there remains in you a temptation and tendency to sin, a fundamental and radical change has occurred so that you have the desire to serve others and to see God glorified. We know the inner call to lay down our lives for one another. Why? Because he laid down his life for us, end quote. So we land once again on Mark 10, verse 45 that the Son of Man did not come to be served, even though he was the King, the Lord of Lords, King of all kings, deserving of it, but he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So many of us would would confess, maybe, and, and with conviction, say that we would die for our Lord Jesus Christ. We would lay down our life for for our Savior. But the question is, are we willing to live for him? Are we willing to sacrifice 
everything for the sake of our precious Lord. And day by day, week by week, month by month, live, be compelled by the love of Christ to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and whatever our convictions and beliefs are about this ending of Mark's gospel, we know that you know it and we know that your word is true and everlasting and we can apply these things uh, to our, our hearts and to our lives and once again understand the big picture uh, that as Jesus laid down his life for us, we are called to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. I pray, God, that through this time in the Gospel of Mark these last few years, that uh, our hearts have been moved to, to do that, just by increments, more and more, and our love for you, Lord Jesus, has increased, and so that our faithfulness and obedience would follow. So help us with these things, God. Thank you that you are with us through it all. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.